BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's Friday, August 21st, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download in streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this week's episode is sponsored by harrys.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at a better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's harrys.com, coupon code inquiringminds. Okay, this is going to be a little bit of a rant, so fair warning out to you. But one of my pet peeves is the way in which women who choose to use drugs to minimize the pain of childbirth are implicitly shamed on social media. I often see posts from friends who trumpet the fact that they got through their labor, quote unquote, naturally, without medication. It's seen as a triumph, a victory, which kind of implies that a woman who didn't, who asked for an epidural or other meds, even though she didn't have complications or, you know, an otherwise quote-unquote normal birth, whatever that means, uh, was somehow defeated by the pain. Most of us, though, don't go around announcing that we got a root canal without pain relief because we wanted to avoid the risks of particular pain meds, right? Now, I know childbirth is complicated by the added consideration of the baby, of course, and we can talk more about this issue later. But seeing these posts got me thinking about the subjectivity of the experience of pain. 
I simply don't know what it's like to be in your body and what it feels like to be in pain, even if the cause is the same. And we know that there are differences in how much pain different people can withstand, how they rate that pain, and so on. So it doesn't make sense to think that two people in the same situation, whether it's childbirth or a root canal, actually have the same level of subjective pain experience. And this is true also of cravings, sort of the other side of pain, I think. Maybe donuts taste much better to me than they do to you. I mean, we know that that's true because not everybody even likes donuts. So let's say that eating a donut for me is as close to a sublime experience as anything else. And just to be clear, it's not, but let's just pretend. That means that every time I walk past the donut shop, I have to resist having a most sublime experience. Whereas if you don't even like donuts, walking past the shop is really no big deal. So are you, because you don't stop at the donut shop and get a donut, a kind of, you know, bigger person or, a, you know, have more willpower than me who walked past the shop and tried really hard to resist it, but ultimately failed and ate the donut? So the subjectivity of experience is present in every artistic depiction of drug addiction, whether it's an opera or a poem or a painting, but we don't hear clinicians and neuroscientists talk about it very much. Instead, as a society, we've come to accept the idea that addiction is a disease, like cancer or MS. It's, you know, impersonal, in which the sufferer is not to blame. And there's an implicit view, then, that every addict has a similar experience or disease progression. But Mark Lewis, he's a recovered heroin addict and a neuroscientist, and so he's in a unique position to merge the art and science of addiction into a fuller understanding. So his most recent book is The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, and it's poised to do just that. I caught up with him to talk about why he thinks the disease model is flawed and what's missing from our conception of addiction. So that will be our interview for today. But Kishore, what caught your eye in the news this week? We have a functional Ebola vaccine. Really? Well, this news actually emerged a couple weeks ago. There was a viral image of a six-year-old Cecilia Kamara from Liberia who's holding up a sign that says, thank you, science. And what she's referring to is there is an initial study that came out in The Lancet that was reporting on the Ebola trial. And it's had 100% efficacy so far, over 7,600 7, people. Now, there's a lot of reason to celebrate. 100% efficacy, even in an early trial, is 100% efficacy. It's amazing. And uh, so far, they haven't found significant side effects from the people that have received the vaccination. So, and the vaccination actually contained a live virus, so they're actually anticipating some um, some side effects, but nothing has really emerged. We're still in an interim moment. There's still some work to do, all of that. But what what really caught my eye wasn't so much the story of the vaccine breaking out. It's a huge accomplishment. But the director of the Wellcome Trust, Jeremy Farrar, who is a scientist in his own right, the Wellcome Trust is one of the largest. Uh, private foundations that grants out money on vaccines in the UK wrote an op-ed in The Guardian this week about how we deal with development of vaccines in the case of an epidemic. Let me pose you this question. So there's a legitimate epidemic breaking out in Africa around Ebola. Normally, when we build a trial for developing a vaccine, we would do you know, animal testing, safety testing. And then when we got to humans, we would do a double-blind trial with a placebo how do you give a placebo to somebody that has a virus that's going to kill them? 
Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a tough question for a medical ethicist. You know, I think we have certain, you know, we do a cost benefit analysis, right? On the basis of a large scale population, yada, yada, yada. Is that what you do? I don't know. What do you do? I think it's an unanswerable question. Um, but uh, when you look at the uh, Ebola e- epidemic, which I think by all accounts, there was really rapid response from organizations that are not used to that. Uh, the Wellcome Trust gave out $10 million in grants within the first month of the epidemic really breaking out. A number of Western organizations mobilized boots on the ground. They dissolved some of these practices and barriers to development of the vaccine. Uh, while they did a lot of safety studies, they still sort of accelerated how quickly we were doing that. Still in that year that it took between when the epidemic broke out and where we are now, 11,000 people died. And so he put forth, Jeremy put forth this really interesting argument that we need to rethink how we're developing vaccines. Because once the epidemic breaks out, we're going to have this result. This is a huge victory against Ebola. But did those 11,000 people have to die in that way? We know of a few things that are coming down the pipe that we need to think about, like SARS or MERS, that maybe we could do the development up to the stage where it's ready for human trial, but not really send them into human trial until we see something that is indicating vectors of outbreak. Or maybe this is a question for the statisticians. I mean, I know that in terms of the way that we think about neuroimaging, the statisticians have come up with completely novel ways of trying to find comparisons between, you know, active brain regions and inactive brain regions and, you know, really just thinking totally outside the box. And so maybe we need to think about an alternative to placebo-controlled trials that really is outside the box, that somehow, you know, plays with statistics that can give us the answers without having to sacrifice those 11,000 people. I think this is an argument about money as much as anything else, because everything that we're talking about, the development of new models, the like changing of regulations about this, having rapid response, boils down to money. And I think what Jeremy is really arguing, which I think is really interesting, is what if we develop a global vaccine fund that a lot of people pour money into to think about this? And by the same token, what if we started using big data? You know, we don't maybe need a sample anymore if we can just test the population. Maybe question marks. <laughs> I think right. there's I think there's some folks at uh, some regulatory bodies that are going to give Indre a call after this. <laughs> uh, I know nothing. Um, so you have a kid. Yes. Uh, would you have a second kid? Uh, we're not having a second kid. Uh, it's partially kind of like personal choice and uh, things that I'm not ready to discuss <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, you are not alone. So I want to talk about a study of new parents uh, in Germany. So um, that was reported on in the Washington Post. That's actually where I saw reference to it. But the study was designed to find out why a lot of people in before they have any kids, when asked, how many kids do you want to have? Say two, but then go on to only have one. So the question is, what happens after you have the first kid that makes you say, meh? about having a second one. <laughs> oh, I'm interested to hear the results of it. <laughs> oh, I don't know if you are. <laughs> so they looked at about 2,000 Germans who were childless at the beginning of the study, and they followed them until their child, first child, was at least two years old. And they asked them a question, how satisfied are you with your life, all things considered? And people had to say from zero, completely dissatisfied, to 10, completely satisfied, sort of how happy they are. 
And they ask the question this way, because if you ask people about, you know, how happy they are to have a child or, you know, all uh, this kind of right? things, totally yeah. biased. But the question was pretty simple. How happy are you with your life? How satisfied with you are, are, are you with your life? Now, let me just say <laughs> that a lot of people reported being less happy having had a child than before they had the child or even when they were expecting the child, which actually gave a little boost in happiness. In fact, the average response was a 1.4 unit drop in happiness. Holy cow. Which, as the article notes, is considered very severe. So let me just put that into perspective. So about of the people who reported being less happy, about a third reported a one unit drop, about a fifth reported a two unit drop, and about 17% reported a three unit drop. Three unit drops like you should be on medication, like you're <laughs> so really in, unhappy. In previous studies, divorce led to a 0.6 unit drop. Well, I can understand that. If you're uh, in an unhappy marriage, divorce might be a not I so terrible so. thing. Unemployment, a one unit drop. But the death of your partner, also only a one unit drop. Oh, that is ridiculous. You're saying there's a, a 17% reported three times as a drop versus... Have, losing your partner? Well, again, these are different studies, so we don't know exactly how comparable these numbers are. Um, but certainly there is some indication that for some people, having a child is oh. worse than being widowed. Oh, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Oh, hold up. So when did they ask them how happy they were? Because I think, it, like, if you called me at 3 a.m. when I'm, like, I had poop on my face because, like, you know, the diaper didn't quite hold it all in, I might have said a number that would be different than if I had a full night's rest. Yes, and that's why they tested 2,000 people. <laughs> Because not everybody is going to be called. No, but, but, you know, if every time you are called, you have poop on your face, then that's probably an indicator no, that you don't have I, a happy life. I ask because it's mostly a question about, like, what age of the was the child when they asked the question? Because I've had fluctuations there. And I heard from a lot of parents that they have fluctuations. Like, it can be really hard depending on the temperament of your child and, like, other situations, especially in that first year. So for sure, that you're you're exactly right. So they they were up until they, so they tested people until the child was at least two years old, um, but you know that means that the majority of people were reporting something you know as their happiness within the first two years, which I think are probably the hardest. I mean, I don't know, I haven't even gotten to the second year yet. Um, but it gets better, Andre. <laughs> that's what people keep telling me. We'll see. But the interesting thing about this study is that it's not over. They're going to continue to follow these people, and we are going to find out whether this dip in happiness actually attenuates by the time the kid is four or five or six or 21 or 31. We'll see. <laughs> but, you know, it, the interesting thing is that the, these data actually are very similar to um, studies of people keeping diaries in which they sort of report the same thing where, you know, people will tell you that the child makes their life worthwhile and that they are much happier having had the child. But if you actually look at and you query them at specific moments in time, um, people do report that, you know, having a kid ain't easy. If my son or wife are listening, I am so much happier with you guys in my life. So just one more thing that I want to say about this study that I found interesting. So it turns out that the experience during those first two years does predict whether or not the couple will opt for a second child. And that this correlation is especially strong for people with higher education. <laughs> so 
people who are educated <laughs> realize that if it was hard the first time, maybe having a second child is not going to make them happier. <laughs> I'm inside an episode of Freakonomics right now. This is terrifying. <laughs> so with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Mark Lewis. We at Inquiring Minds are big fans of The Great Courses. The Great Courses has been in production for 25 years and offers engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their field. One course we'd recommend is Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation by Eastern Philosophy Professor Mark Meese of Rhodes College. It's one of the most interesting and comprehensive explorations of mindfulness out there. You'll learn how mindfulness, when correctly practiced, offers deep and lasting benefits for mental functioning and emotional health, as well as physical health and well-being. You should check it out. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order Practicing Mindfulness and Introduction to Meditation and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is only available for a limited time. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship for free straight to your door. I've used Harry's for months now. They're the best razors I've ever used. I'm never switching back. And their starter set is just $15. That includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you use our coupon code, inquiringminds. That's harrys.com, coupon code, inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Mark Lewis. Hi. So you've written a book. It's called The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease, a very controversial title. And I want to start out with getting an understanding of why there is a large faction of people that think addiction is a disease or should be labeled as such. So what is the disease model of addiction and where did it come from? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question um, because people because the disease model is the prevalent view. And so people often start off by saying, well, why isn't it a disease? And I feel like saying, well, why would you think it is a, a disease? Uh, and um, I think the reason people call it a disease is because uh, – this is a, a a nomenclature that has developed over the last many decades, kind of gradually, and it, it started when the AA um, notion of um, a kind of a spiritual malady became fused with the uh, ideas from residential care, especially in North America, and then along came medicine, and medicine said, you know, yes, yes, we, we see that addiction is in fact a disease, uh, and that's why people should, you know, should definitely go and get cured and get treated um, by going to these locations and doing what we tell you. And then came the decade of the brain in the 90s, and um, that was important because now people had actual data they could point to, specifically uh, changes in the activation levels or activation regions of parts of the brain that seem to be contingent on 
um, people being exposed to drug images or people or the length of time that people were um, involved with drugs. And so so they said, see, it's a, it's a disease, it's a brain disease because we're, we're seeing brain changes. So that kind of clinched the definition. And there's an argument, of course, that if you call it a disease, it takes away the um, sort of agency from the person who is suffering from it. We don't then stigmatize them as much, perhaps. We don't blame them. You know, you don't blame someone for getting cancer, uh, although for a long time, and, and even still, I think there's this, this view that a person who has become a drug addict is somehow at fault. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, the notion that the the addict is at fault and is morally not only at fault but morally reprehensible and self indulgent and all that. Uh that also well that's been around for a long time since the Victorian era. And and that idea was um diluted by the notion that addiction might be a disease. If it's a disease, it's not your fault. And therefore, um shame and blame and moral decrepitude and all that stuff had less of a leg to stand on. So that, that helped to reinforce the disease definition. So let's talk a little bit about the brain changes that happen with addiction and why, in your view, that doesn't mean that it's a disease. So once, if, if, we, if we compare the brain of an addict with the brain of someone who's not addicted, and let's pick a substance as opposed to some other kind of addiction, let's say they're addicted to heroin, what are the changes that we can expect to see in their brain, or I should say the differences between the brain of the addict and the brain of the person who is not addicted? Okay, so there's lots of levels to answer that. And well, one thing to say is that the brain is always changing, and, and it, it's changing most noticeably in during childhood and adolescence, and there's massive architectural changes going on, especially in the cortex and the limbic system. And what that means is that um, as learning takes place, there are changes in the placement and density of synapses. Some synapses are reinforced, other synapses are pruned, and so you get an actual change in the wiring diagram. But that's the case for learning in general, and it's especially the case for um, highly motivated learning. So when when the learning involves highly attractive goals, like drugs, but also things like falling in love, or things like religious conversion, or things like, um, uh, yeah, jihadism. I mean, there's any one of a number, or you know, we've one of, one of the. Uh, examples that is sort of known to the um, to people in general to the popular culture is that London cab drivers have got their their hippocampus, the area of the brain that is in charge of um, of explicit memory, is bigger, is heavier for London cab drivers than it is normally. Why? Because they have to memorize the location of all of those tens of thousands of streets, so they're using it more, and it's bigger, and that's just one kind of uh, almost trite example of brain change uh, that is a result of, of a particular kind of, lo- of repetitive learning, intense, ongoing learning. But we don't call them having the, you know, London cab driver disease. Yeah. <laughs> we don't say that. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And, you know, as far as falling in love, it's, it's sort of debatable. I mean, the poets, are, <laughs> poets call it a disease, sort of. I mean, they, they imply that, you know, you're pretty messed up. And, and, and rock musicians and, you know, pop musicians have been talking about, you know, it, it hurts to be in love in all kinds of ways. And you're all messed up when you're, when you're deeply in falling in love. And so there's reasons to think that there's a lot in common with these different phenomena, these highly motivated forms of learning. 
So let's drill down a little bit uh, more specifically into the kinds of brain regions that we're talking about when we talk about the changes that happen with addiction as a result of, you know, I'm presuming that what you're implying is that an addict is learning that this particular context in which they take this drug, this drug itself is something that is very desirable because it either gives them relief from pain or it gives them uh, uh, some other kind of high. And so their brain is, is wiring up to kind of make note of the situations in which they can have this very strong feeling. So what are some of the changes then that we see? Uh, are there particular brain regions involved? Um, any insight we can gain from the kind of neuroanatomical or, or functional changes that we see when a person becomes addicted to a drug? Well, as you know, the, the mem- memory is an incredibly complex, multifaceted function. But if we're talking about long-term learning, then we're talking about changes in synaptic networks, changes in the synapses themselves. And synapses get changed by things like long-term potentiation, which just really means that the synapses is becoming reinforced and that reinforcement uh, remains in effect for some period of time, which means that a synapse is a, is a connection between two neurons, two or more neurons. And... um that synapse uh, with learning it can become more or less efficient. So if it's an excitatory connection and it gets activated again and again, that means it becomes more efficient. That means more molecules cross over from one neuron to the next on each subsequent trial. So that means that that's strengthening a roadway between one group of neurons and another. And the more roadways you strengthen, the more you're building up a kind of network of, of pathways between among neurons and building a, a, an architecture, a pattern, a configuration. And that pattern then, in some sense, represents the learned phenomenon. And that could be riding a bike, or it could be um, learning you know, to, uh, to take heroin, or it could be developing a fondness for, for cheesecake, or, uh, or for a person, man, woman, a dog, cat. I mean, it's, uh, it could be uh, just about any form of learning. But I think what's interesting about my position on addiction, and I'm certainly not the only one, is that it is a learned phenomenon. It's a, it's a cognitive habit that is learned. And what that means is it's a response style. It's a response tendency that's learned and reinforced. And that's kind of complicated because it, not only the, the, the response tendency, the, the way you grasp, the way you reach, the way, the importance of the thing, but also, um, yeah, it's value, what it means to you. Uh, it's association. It becomes symbolic of other things. Drugs, for example, opiates, because they feel warm and cozy, they can also uh, represent the feeling of being in love or the feeling of being connected to or being supported by others. And uh, those associations then become learned and they become engraved, they become embedded and reinforced. And there's a feedback cycle going on because the more you build this synaptic network um, that that provides the drug with its value, with its meaning, then the more you think of it that way, the more you are drawn to it and the more you go after it and the more you go after to it, uh, after it, the more you reinforce those synapses and that's the feedback loop. So it's a positive feedback cycle. More synaptic architecture gets devoted to it, which means you pursue it more and the more you pursue it, the more, the more you build on to that synaptic architecture. So if I were to be a completely rational person, not sort of humanist, not looking at kind of the, the artistic side of, of uh, the, the human experience, and I were to say that my goal is the pursuit of happiness. And let's say 
let's let's forget for a moment that um, you can develop a tolerance to a particular drug. It would be a completely rational choice to choose to, you know, shoot up a drug like heroin if what I want is to feel connected to other people, because it will give me that feeling of connection immediately, consistently, unlike the unpredictable humans, you know, that surround me. Some Sometimes they reject me and I don't understand why and so forth, but heroin never rejects me. So, you know, in some ways, I, I would almost argue that from the brain's perspective, forget about the consequences, take Taking the drug is actually the more rational choice. Is that does that resonate with you? Absolutely, sure. That's one of the key things about addiction. Well, let's say substance addiction, like because we might want to differentiate it from gambling. With gambling, you don't know where the roulette roulette wheel is gonna is gonna stop, right? Or which cards are gonna come up, or which dice are gonna show up. So you're always taking a risk. But when you take um, when you take heroin, or when you take methamphetamine, or cocaine, or whatever it is you are pretty sure that it's going to feel like this, like a certain way. And that is that kind of guarantee, that kind of certainty is something that we don't often get from life. As you say, the relationship may or may not work out and your girlfriend or boyfriend may or may not be nice to you and warm and cuddly and cozy and embracing on a particular day. They might be pissed off at you. Uh, Whereas with, with heroin or opiates or whatever, you can be, as you say, pretty sure this is how it's going to feel. And so taking drugs is actually an exquisite way of controlling your mood state, controlling what's coming in. In that sense, it's tremendously efficient. It's a very efficient way of getting what you need. Of course, there are all kinds of uh-huh, negative effects of, um, you know, this is definitely a dark side, but that's the bright, that's the bright side. That's, that's what's good about it. So from the brain's perspective, though, you know, I'm sort of of the view that the brain is is often, obviously not explicitly, but uh, in the way that it's wired is, is seeking kind of an equilibrium. So if in a certain context, it expects the influx of a particular drug, then it's going to set its own workings, its own sort of neurotransmitter balances in the opposite direction to prepare for that, right? Is that, is that, that's sort of my understanding of how yes. people develop tolerance, why they have to take more yes. drug. Um, okay. Yes, so, sure. so assuming that that's the case, that's sort of where it becomes irrational to continue to take a drug because ultimately, you know, you've got some of these changes that are going to happen in the brain that will make that drug less appealing or, you know, less, less pleasurable. So can we just talk a little bit about the science behind understanding of tolerance? So first of all, are there certain drugs that are more likely to, um, you know, that, that you ha have a higher likelihood of developing a tolerance for? And, and why might that be for those particular drugs? So, okay, well, let's break it down. So there's physical tolerance to the drug itself. And then there's also a psychological tolerance. Because I mean, uh, you don't get much tolerance with coffee, but uh, if you take coffee every day, you know, at whatever, 7.30 in the morning, you're not going to notice it a whole lot because you do it all the time. So that's a psychological tolerance, right? Insensitivity. Physical tolerance is different because, as you say, the synapses are used to a certain amount of molecule getting through uh, for that particular drug, that particular network. And so... In order to, um, uh, uh, in order to register in, in awareness and consciousness, you're going to need more molecules to get through, um, to say, Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's what this is. Yes. Good morning. Opiate system, opioid system. That's, uh, nice to see you again. 
And then there's, there's not only the conscious awareness, but there is then the development of a need for the drug, which means that, as you, as you implied, the body is compensating. So because it's expecting a certain amount of opioids, it's, it's used to getting a, a low level of opioids anyway because they get produced in your own brain, in your own hypothalamus. You get, let's say, you know, a, a low level of opioids and they come in very handy when you hurt your finger or when someone's mean to you or when you're feeling anxious or stressed in rush hour. That's what opioids do. They calm you down when you're upset. So your, your synapses are ready for that level of opioids. If you bombard it with, you know, a hundred times that amount, then it's going, the synapse itself is going to not only become less sensitive, but it's also going to, there's going to be a, a converse reaction from that system and related systems. There's going to be, um, a compensatory reaction because your brain doesn't want to get overwhelmed with opioids because that's going to make it all dopey and drowsy. So it's going to throw in some stimulating neurochemicals into the mix to compensate for the uh, overload of opioids that it expects to get because it's been getting it every day for the last, you know, three and a half years or whatever. And it's that compensatory effect of let's say in this case stimulating um, neurochemicals that is the cause of withdrawal of symptoms. So if you don't take the opioids on a particular day because you've run out of money, you've run out of drug, or your dealer's gotten busted, then you just have the stimulating effects of other chemicals like norepinephrine, which is a kind of adrenaline for the brain, which means you're going to get all hyper aroused and that's not very much fun, it's not very pleasant. And there's all kinds of other reactions too in your stomach and other... Uh, parts of your body that are all trying to compensate for the anticipated ex- uh, effect of the opioids. It, it's an amazing system. It, it's it's so powerful, and it's almost as though the brain has got a minder. Like um, when I was an undergraduate student and I was working with rats, my my mentor, um, who was a senior, I guess a postdoc. She would go and give her rats uh, their shot of morphine every day at 4.30 or whatever it was in the afternoon. And she noticed that when she got there, the rats would start to get withdrawal symptoms at like at, you know, at 4.15, like 15 minutes before they were anticipating getting their morphine. So why would that happen? It's like the brain is anticipating this overload of opioid molecules and it's already doing the uh, compensatory thing. And it's 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 an amazing thing. It's like the brain is doing really good planning for what it what it expects and what it's used to getting. And you know, it, I, I've also heard that that's one of the reasons why a lot of um, musicians who overdose die in hotel rooms they've never been in because in those environments their brain does not set up the compensatory response because it doesn't expect to get the drug, and so they take the same dose that they usually are used to, and all of a sudden it's an it's too much. Is that is that an accurate? Um, inference of what happens. Well, that's, um, yeah, I hadn't heard that particular um, factoid, but it makes sense. It sure does make sense. Okay. So let's talk a little bit now about what exactly it is that people are looking for when they take these drugs. And I, and I guess what I, what I really want to talk about is the wonderful Bruce Alexander Rat Park study that you describe in the book. Um, so I think a lot of us have this notion that an addict is always going to choose drug over, you know, anything else, right? That's kind of the, the image we have, especially if you, if you have a rat, for example, that's addicted to a drug. And yet the rat park example suggests that that's not the case. Tell us a little bit about that study. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, I've written two books about addiction. The first one was called Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. And in that one, I told the story of my own addiction during uh, my 20s. I was I got addicted to opioids, uh, pretty strongly addicted, and committed a lot of crimes, got in a lot of trouble, and got kicked out of graduate school, and et cetera, et cetera. And I also talked about the science, and especially the neuroscience of addiction, and blended that together with the story. And I even had a chapter which was called Nightlife in Rat Park, which is a I, I, I like that title. I think it's a great title. But the rat park studies show that when rats are in isolated, when they're isolated one to a cage, there are normal rat research cages environments, and they are likely to become addicted to morphine if it's offered to them. But when those same rats are placed in an environment which is, um, first of all, social, so they've got other rats to play with, and second of all, more interesting, they've got toys, rat toys. It's a rat park. It's got, <laughs> it's got activities for them to do. And guess what? They give up their morphine voluntarily. They stop taking it. And that was a huge, um, onslaught against the, the, um, prevalent model of addiction, which is that nobody would give up an addictive drug on purpose. I mean, they're addicted. They, that's all they want is that drug. Well, no, that's not all they want. That's what they want if they're lonely and bored. But if they have other things to do, then it's possible for them to choose not to take the drug. And that was a good support for the choice model of addiction and for the kind of social self-medication model of addiction, but not for the disease model of addiction. And then in my second book, the one that's just come out, it's called The Biology of Desire, Why Addiction is Not a Disease. I go back to the Bruce Alexander model and, and show how the addicts that I interviewed, like me, those nights in the basement down in the rat labs, um, many of them have experienced uh, isolation, depression, uh, boredom, um, it, you know, all that stuff. And so their addiction can be seen in the context of those negative feeling states. And that's where Rat Park comes back. It comes back again and again. It's a wonderful uh, kind of paradigm case for how addiction actually fills a very particular need. It doesn't just happen because of drugs are addictive, period. It happens for very particular social and emotional reasons. And I was very surprised to read in your book your assertion that actually a lot of addicts quit at some point. And in fact, that you even, you even put a number on uh, opioid uh, addicts, people who are addicted to heroin, for example, that they generally last about 15 years. And, you know, unless they die beforehand, um, you know, and, and a small minority of them continue to use all the time, but that a lot of addicts actually do kick the habit. Do you see this, you know, as something that they, they do because other parts of their life become more fulfilling? Or do you think that there is really an effective treatment out there um, that somehow is curative? Well, of course, this is a really complex issue, right? And not everybody quits exactly the same way. But a part of it is usually that the drugs themselves become aversive. Addiction is a pretty aversive thing. You, you start, whether it's drugs or booze or gambling or sex addiction or whatever it is, it starts off being fun and pleasurable, perhaps, and more and more it becomes habitual and then it eventually becomes boring. But it's also aversive because you have to do nasty things to get the money. Uh, you might have to lie and cheat and, and so on and so forth. And it becomes a source of anxiety. It becomes intrinsically aversive and, and uh, negatively reinforcing. So that's part of the equation. And then the other part is that for people to quit, they do need generally to find other activities that take the place of the addictive activity. So 
drugs become less valuable, less important, less attractive. And at the same time, uh, if you are lucky, then you get offered um, opportunities to engage with other people, for example, in a therapeutic community or in um, other kinds of, of community or um, other kinds of interpersonal networks that allows you to connect up with other people so that you can switch over and take those feelings of emptiness and and connect the desire to connect with other people rather than with, with drugs. So I want to jump a little bit more deeply into the brain and into a part of the brain called the striatum in particular. This this is a, a very important region of the brain for addiction. Um, it's it's the part of our brain that kind of figures out how the things that we want, our goals, align with what we need to do to get them and how good there's, it's going to feel when we actually do achieve them. And I just want to you know talk a little bit about the sort of let's really simplify things and divide the striatum into two parts, the ventral part and the dorsal part or the top and the bottom. And let's talk about the accumbens, the ventral part and the dorsal part as kind of the accumbens being the way that I always thought about it is sort of the place where pleasure actually happens, right? So if you see accumbens activation in an fMRI scanner, um, a lot of us actually say, oh, that person, you know, we're making the uh, 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 incorrect inference, but we're saying that person is is feeling pretty good right now. Whereas the dorsal part, I think of it more as the the part of the striatum that is actually tracking things in the environment that are going to be associated with that good thing. It's sort of the learning part of it. So first, correct me if anything I've just said is out of line with current research. Okay. Uh, I think... Okay, so you're right to divide the striatum into, uh, to make it simple for my readers, I call it a northern half and a southern half. And the southern half or southern pole is indeed the um, the ventral striatum. And uh, a very specific part of that is the nucleus accumbens. And you often hear about the accumbens in addiction research. It, it's, it's the villain. It's one of the villains. And then the dorsal part or the dorsolateral part of the striatum is is different and it's it's uh they both suck up dopamine but they use it in different ways so the ventral striatum is pretty much um in charge of impulsive behavior so that is to say spontaneous uh goal seeking wouldn't this be fun let's get let's get loaded tonight right now let's go do this or let's go do that or let's have a pizza or you know wouldn't it be fun to uh uh, you know, go to Big Sur for the weekend or whatever it is. So that's the impulsive way of connecting. Whereas the dorsal striatum is in charge of a compulsive way of connecting to the world, which is to say that you have a hard time turning the behavior off. So, uh, in a com- and people who talk about addiction as a disease or people who talk about it in other ways recognize that there is a compulsive aspect to addiction. And therefore, it is similar in some ways to obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, OCD. And that's important because the compulsive part is really a drag. It's it's the feeling that you have to do it. And if you don't do it, you just feel anxious and upset and incomplete. And it's not even because you're anticipating that it's going to be so much fun and you're going to be having a good time. Rather, it's just the sense that I just got to do it. I got to do it. It's got to, it's, you know, it's waiting to be done. And that's like, you know, with OCD where there's a certain ritualistic behavior that just continues to call to you and, and tell you do it. 
one of the parts of the book that made me sit up and pay a lot of attention was when you redefine the accumbents in terms of pleasure and, and you make a distinction between desire or wanting and liking that, that feeling of, of relief and pleasure. And all of a sudden, you know, all of the poems that we read about how pleasure is the death of desire made a lot of sense to me. Uh, so tell our audience, um, first of all, why you think the accumbents really is about desire rather than um, liking in a certain sense and, and, and sort of the amount of real estate that one takes up versus the other. Yeah, uh, because I follow Berridge's theory. Berridge and colleagues, he's at the University of Michigan, and he's been writing for about 20 years about the independence of two, two different brain systems, both of which are rooted in the striatum. One is the, what he calls the wanting system, and the other one is the liking system. And he puts these words in quote marks to make sure that we understand them as very specific technical terms. So the wanting system is about desire, wanting, desire, craving, all that stuff, which is why I call the book The Biology of Desire. I, I follow Berridge in the assumption that addiction has a lot more to do with wanting than it does with liking. And um, it's that desire, it's that craving that is so difficult for addicts to contend with because it just keeps, it, it just keeps being there. It just keeps, it's like an itch that doesn't go away, the wanting. And, uh, and that craving is what induces you to do it again and again, even though you don't necessarily expect anymore that it's going to be fun. So that's the other system, the liking system, the pleasure system. And that according to Berridge and colleagues, occupies a lot less um, area, a lot less volume in the brain. It's about 100 times smaller. There's very specific spots, which he calls hot spots in the striatum, that are devoted to pleasure, to, to liking rather than wanting. And, and the funny thing is that with addiction or with pizza or with falling in love, um, Usually liking comes first. You say, oh, this is good. This is, uh, I really like this or I really like her or him. And uh, that leads to wanting. And then the wanting becomes the motivator of the cycle of doing. I want it. I do it. I get it. I take the drug or I call up the person and then it lasts for a certain period of time and then it's gone. And then it leaves in its, in its, uh, in its wake, it leaves a sense of absence or emptiness, and you want it again. So the craving comes back. And it's that wanting that drives the behavior. It's not pleasure per se. It's desire. And that's one of the things that actually made me really get a better understanding of what it must be like to be addicted to a particular drug from your book. And we, we've somehow run out of time, but I just wanted to ask you one last question, which is, what do you think is the best argument? Because I know a lot of our audience members, a lot of people out there are going to, you know, react to the, the idea that, that we shouldn't call the addiction a disease. Um, you know, it's, what do you think is the best argument from the addict's perspective of why we shouldn't, um, why society should not be thinking about addiction as a disease? From the addict's perspective, there are some addicts who say the disease label is helping them because it relieves them of stigma. And I can understand that because they're not getting blamed or shamed as much because, okay, it's a disease. It's not my fault. But a lot of the addicts that I talk to and that you read about and, and people write about uh, don't like the disease label. And they don't like it because it takes away their sense of power, their sense of, em of empowerment, their sense of personal responsibility. When people work hard to overcome their addictions, and they do, and they succeed, most of them do succeed, most addicts get better. But then they don't want to be told that this was, you know, some kind of spontaneous, uh, 
remission. It's not some kind of remission that just happened to happen. And then someday it's going to, you know, you're going to get a relapse. It's going to come back. So that's too bad for you, buddy. Rather, they see it as a function of their willpower and their capacity to change perspective and their capacity to change their goal structure. These are effortful things. They're important cognitive skills. They take some work. They pay off. You become not only relieved of your addiction, so to speak, but you become a better person. You grow out of it. And addicts, many addicts really like that idea. The idea that they are moving, they're not just recovering, they're not just going backwards, but they're moving forward. They're developing further. And the disease label does not allow people to feel that way. It does not encourage that way of understanding addiction. Well, on that note, I want to thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Mark Lewis. You're welcome. And thank you for, yeah, thanks for your interest. So that was a really intriguing position he had. But if, if you can hear the tone of my voice, I'm not convinced. I kind of see us calling addiction a disease more about breaking the stigma around these situations than it is about the clinical definition of disease, which I think he rebutted more than the stigma argument. Yeah, and I actually think that's an empirical question. I think that we should do a study and find out whether or not calling something a disease, calling addiction a disease, leads to more or less stigma than talking about the addiction as a series of sort of habits. Or I mean, I don't really know exactly how he wants us to talk about it. Um, you know, as a, I didn't get a, a kind of a elevator pitch yet, a kind of soundbite from him where I can say, okay, let's not call it a disease. Let's call it, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever. I don't know what that is. But it would be an interesting question to see whether the stigma does actually change. And, and I think, you know, his argument for empowering uh, addicts and making them feel as though they are in control to some extent over whether or not they are, go into remission, I think you know, that's, that's an interesting argument. Like, you know, if you're, if you're a cancer survivor and you have to go, you know, on your annual checkups and every time you're, you're worried that the cancer is going to show up again and you have no control over that, you know, that's kind of stressful. But if you're an addict and if Mark Lewis is right in the sense that, you know, once you kick it, the chances of you, you know, remitting are not, are not that high or what have you, what have you, does that stress go away? And is the loss of that stress actually much more beneficial uh, to the patient? So look, we, we can't discount how powerful his personal story is here and how him as a recovering addict um, has influenced his uh, research into this area. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question, though. Do you think him coming from a position of being a recovering addict actually biases some of his findings or research questions? Um, of course, just like me being, you know, having, you know, we all bring our own biases into our work. And, and I think there is no, I mean, there's no, if you, if you don't think that's the case, then I think, you know, you're, you're a little bit delusional. But the fact is, is that most neuroscientists don't come with his baggage and some of them are still finding similar effects, right? So, I, you know, it's not that he's, it's only in his lab that he finds that, you know, these addicts recover and so forth. I mean, he's, he's, he's really talking about research from a lot of different labs, you know, across the board. And so I think that his bias comes in his interpretation of the results, for sure. And we need to consider that. Um, but I also think that, you know, not all neuroscientists who study addiction are addicts. And so this is not uh, something that we need to worry about globally across all addiction research. So do you think alcoholism is a disease? 
You know, it's a good question. And um, I don't think it's a disease, but I think it has disease-like properties. Just like, you know, in some ways, I don't think healthy aging is a disease. Uh, and yet there are certain changes that happen with age that, you know, we can't control and so forth. And I do think that there are people who, again, have a different subjective experience. So like at the top of the show, I talked about subjective experience of pain. I do think that for some people, kicking a habit is harder than for others. Um, and, you know, I think that probably depends on the habit and so forth. But so I, I don't blame a person who is an alcoholic or, or is addicted to a drug um, for feeling that way you know, or, or for, for, for sort of behaving in that fashion, um, because I don't think that they have the same amount of control over it as, say, someone who's not addicted does. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of practicing mindfulness and introduction to meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by harrys.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's harrys.com, coupon code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by the very happy and childless Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre This. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.